morning we'll continue our study in the book of Mark. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 3, and uh, we're going to take a large portion of the text this morning, a, a, a large passage. We'll be reading from verses 20 all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 35. And so that will be on the screen for you as well, but if you don't have, uh, if, if you have your copy, if you want to turn there as well with me, it'd be great to follow along. So Mark chapter 3. Verses 20 to 35. Verses 20 to 35. This is what the Word of God says. Then he, speaking of Jesus, went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem. They were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him. And he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven to the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother? And my brothers. And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Ask God to bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word. We've read it. It rolls off of our lips, enters into our hearing. We pray that. You would use it. Jesus, we've given you the glory, preeminence in our gathering this morning. We call you Lord. So we sit at your feet, we pray by your spirit. You would use this text to draw us closer to you. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that those who need to be brought low this morning by this text would be, that those who need to be lifted up they would hear from you this morning. Ultimately, that all of us would see Jesus Christ for who he truly is. And we would meet him here this morning. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's been said before that when you're just getting tired of saying something, people are just beginning to hear it. This is maybe where Mark is this morning. Here we are at the end of chapter 4. Mark's been telling us for a long time that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. You might tell me, Pastor Josh, I've heard that a lot of times. I'm ready to hear something different. Are you? Are you really ready to hear something different? This is what the Spirit of God has for us this morning. Number one, that Jesus is the Son of God. That He is the Messiah. We looked at it a few weeks ago, how there's been a bit of a midterm or a summary. We see another one this morning. This morning we don't see a summary of Mark's message thus far. We see a summary of those people 
who heard the message and how they responded respectfully. And so what we see here in this text this morning, verses 20 to 35, are three camps. Three groups of people that responded to Jesus. And I want to walk through those three groups this morning. The first group, we see that in verses 20 and 21. It says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to see him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The first group this morning, if you're taking notes, this is the first thing you should write down. The first group, they called Jesus a lunatic. When they looked at Jesus, when they heard what he was saying, they said, this man is a lunatic. I love the way that the ESV translates that phrase, because it's accurate. They thought that Jesus was beside himself. They thought he was literally out of his mind. The things that Jesus was saying and doing, uh, they were getting him into some pretty hot water. That's what happens when you're out of your mind, right? You say things that isolate you. You say things that put, that put you at odds with mankind. This is what was happening with Jesus. He was saying things that were putting him at odds. And so his family looked at him and they said, this guy's a great guy. We like him. He kind of got on my nerves when we would, you know, do have family get-togethers and when I shared a room with him because he was just so perfect. But all in all, Jesus is a great guy. But now the things that he's saying, they're getting him into trouble and we've got to stop him. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, you say, she's in this group. His mother is saying he's out of his mind, he's beside himself. Isn't she the woman that saw the, the angel come to her and say that in your womb is the Son of God, Emmanuel? Has she forgotten that? Place yourself in the shoes of Jesus' family. Did they care about him? I'm sure most of them did. And here now Jesus is saying things that are getting them into hot water. So they have pity on Jesus and they say we've got to stop him from getting himself into any more trouble. No doubt they'd heard that the religious elite were coming for him. They were going to stuff out his life. That was their plan. Maybe the family was coming to stop them. Maybe it was for their name's sake. Maybe they, maybe they were ashamed of the way that Jesus, their brother, was talking. I was bringing shame on their family. Maybe it was pressure there in Nazareth. In Nazareth, that was, bring, that was being brought upon them by Jesus. And so they thought, let's go stop him. He's dragging our father Joseph, his name through the mud. Maybe they just had pity on him. Poor God great guy, but now he's gone off the rails. This was their perspective of Jesus. And so why were they there? They were there to stop him. They were there to stop him. Can you blame Mary? How, how was she to respond to this? She knew the path that her son was heading down. They didn't want him to stop saying everything he was saying. They wanted him to tone it down a little bit. They didn't mind if he said a few things. They didn't mind it so bad when he went into the temple and, and talked to the religious uh, leaders of the day, the synagogue, even as a boy. They didn't mind some of the things he said. But every once in a while, Jesus would say some things that would just kind of grate on their nerves. Or just they would think in their own mind, this guy's just gone a little bit too far. And they say, literally, he's gone out of his mind. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever listened to something that Jesus said and thought, ugh, I wish he hadn't said that? Now, some of you are so... Uh, so far above, and you think, well, I've never done anything like that. And maybe you haven't, but I can't say the same. There's been times, I'm ashamed to say that there's been things that I've read in the scriptures that Jesus has said or done, or even just that the word of God has said, I, mean, I wish, I hope that that doesn't get brought up. 
in this context. I hope that this doesn't come out, but I believe that in this context. And I just maybe wish Jesus would talk a little bit less about this or that or this or that. Have you ever been in that situation? I'm ashamed to say I'm with you. He's made me feel uncomfortable. He's taken things farther than I would in my own life. What pride and arrogance for me to look at the one who created me and the one who now sustains me and say, you've taken this a little too far, but this was the party line for this first group. They were close to Jesus. Are we not close to Jesus? They knew some of the things that he said, and they agreed with much of it, but at the same time, there were things that they wished Jesus wouldn't say. That's you this morning. As your pastor, I want to lovingly call you for a tent. To the trust and submit to the things that God has revealed to us through his word. And to trust and submit to the things that Jesus himself has spoken for our benefit. Do you realize what you're doing when you say things like that? When you, when you cringe at something that Jesus says, you're effectively saying, he's crazy. You're in the same party. So you have to say, repent. Turn from your pride. To think that you can present something clearer or more wholesome than Jesus Christ, the one who holds the universe together, is akin to the sin of Lucifer, who fell from on high. So they thought he was crazy. They went to seize him, it says. They, they thought he had gone berserk. The word for seize, it, it, it's usually used by Mark in a sense of attempting to bind someone, to, to stop someone. And, and when it's used of Jesus, it's to, literally to bind him and to rob him of freedom where he can't get about. He can't say it's a gag order that they want to place against Jesus. That's the sense here. He's a great guy and all. I love him quite a bit. I just wish he would not say this. He's gone mad. He's a lunatic. That was their party line. I would pray that that is not, if it is the party that you are a part of this morning, I pray that it is one that you will repent of and move out of. But there's another group of people in the text. They also wanted to seize Jesus in a way. That's the scribe. Let's look in verse 22. It says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Some of you may even be laughing as you read that. You get the point. You, you see the, the struggle there. Before we get into that, this second party, what are they saying of Jesus? They're saying that he's a liar. The first group said he's a lunatic, and the second group now is saying that he's a liar. So where do you get that? Well, they're saying Jesus is not calling himself... He's not saying of himself that he's possessed of Beelzebul. He's not, he's not, he's saying that he's something quite different. He's saying he's sent from God. He's saying that he is God. He's saying that he's the Messiah. He's saying that on behalf of, the, of, of, of Yahweh that he has come to call people to repent and to believe the good news and to trust in him. And so in essence, they're calling him a liar. Who are these guys calling him Jesus a liar? They were described from, listen, Jerusalem. They were the representatives of the religious rulers of that holy city. They came to weigh in on the matter. They came to, to throw the wet blanket on Jesus. 
and on his ministry and on his message. They wanted to stifle it. They wanted to capture it. They also wanted to seize it. If anybody could in that day, it would be them. Possessed. They claim that Jesus was possessed. There's a little bit of irony here. Why? Because they were saying that Jesus had been seized, that he had been captured, that he, as a puppet, was controlled by the prince of the demons, Beelzebul. We won't get into uh, the name Beelzebul. It's interesting. It's, a, it's another name for Satan. They believe that Jesus was controlled by Satan himself. Now, that's how he was casting out demons. That's how he was doing much of the things that he was seen doing. And that was their party line. He's, he's a deceiver. He's possessed. Their desired outcome was that they would seize Jesus' power and seize his sway among the people by discrediting him. By the way, there's something in this passage that when I first read it, I, I missed it. And I don't want to miss it here this morning. So let's look at this. Jesus responds to these guys. Okay? They say Jesus is possessed by demons. How many of you guys, if you were Jesus, if you were the Son of God, we said this all the time, especially in children's church when we were kids, but how many of you, if you were God, you would just crush them? Literally. Just not even, I wouldn't even make a move. I would, like, I would just kind of give them a look that would like shoot them into the air against like rocks, right? Just boom, they're gone. That's what I would want to do. But what does Jesus do? We can't miss this. They just insulted him. They insulted him in the worst way. By the way, it's the most damning way that you can say anything about Jesus. And we'll look at that next week, by the way. If you want to know more about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at that in depth next week. But Jesus, when they say the worst thing that they could say, when they take hold the, the most awful, terrible position that they can towards him, what does he do? Look at verse 23. He called them to him and said to them in parables, that is way better than anything any of us would do if we were in the same position. He called them to him. Listen, that is grace. That's grace. He drew them close. And he's about to show them the error in their logic. He's about to show them a mistake that they're making in their thinking. And I'm going to ask you something this morning. And I want you to actually say it. Say it out loud. Who here is glad that Jesus does that? That he comes to us, calls us to him when we are thinking wrong. When we've seen something incorrectly, when we've gone about things in our life, where we maybe there's some of you here this morning that used to think something like this. There is no God. That seemed rational for you to say. The psalm says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And yet many of us at times in our life have said that. There is no God. Jesus comes to us. The gospel comes to us in that moment, in that state. And maybe the, your testimony this morning is that, hey, Jesus came to me when that's where I was. Maybe you this morning can say, there was a time in my life where I believed that there was no point to life. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I, I believed at one point in time that I could never be forgiven. Maybe you'd say, I, I, I thought in my life at one point in time that I will never experience restoration, that I'll never experience a redeemed life. 
I'll never be restored. Maybe you've even thought recently, there will never be peace on earth. And to all of these untrue, false statements, and many of them illogical, Jesus comes to us. And what does he do? In his grace, he shows us the error of our thinking. I, for one, am so pleased that Jesus has done that for me. I pray that he continues to do that. He would use our church in, in the same way. So in all these lives, Jesus steps into our space as the people of God, and he calls us close, and he shows us where we are wrong. And by his grace, he's doing that for the scribes who what does he say as he draws them close? What does he say to them? This is so awesome. He can't argue with Jesus. In response to their accusations against him, he offers two parables. And he says this in verse 23. He called them to him and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Come on, man. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is saying, if we just boil it down, there's, there's two obvious conclusions that we can come to. One, Jesus cannot be working with Satan. He's not in agreement with Satan. We see that from these two parables. That's impossible. And another, another thing that he's saying very clearly is that Jesus is actually destroying Satan's work. He's actually destroying Satan's work. Which means to say that he is more powerful than Satan. And this is a big truth that I want you to walk away from this morning. That there is a strong man in this world. And he has bound the eyes and hearts of many. And I'm going to tell you something. There is still yet a stronger man who has busted into that strong man's house, and he has bound him, and he has loosed those who have been bound. And we as the people of God this morning, here we are, unbound, unchained, with eyes to see, because of the stronger man. The scribes, they're correct. Right? If they are, anyway, Satan's kingdom would not stand. Their, their accusation, I mean, the, the logic there, right, right it's, it, it could be possible, but they're incorrect in the sense that Satan's kingdom would not stand. If it was possible that Satan was casting out demons, it, it wouldn't stand. It doesn't even make sense. Satan would not seek to destroy his own kingdom. And as you know, a, a kingdom or a, a house, it cannot stand if it's divided against itself or if it opposes itself. In the same way, Satan would be about bringing be bringing about his own destruction. It's absurd. It's like the old cartoon where with, uh, they're saying of Jesus, or, or of Satan as well, that, that they're standing on this limb high in the tree, and they're hoping to, 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 to destroy the, their enemy by cutting the tree branch that they're standing on, that they find themselves perched on. But on the contrary, Jesus had, in a sense, bound Satan. So he's far stronger. He's overcome Satan. He was able to cast out devils and open the eyes of the spiritually blind. And how was he doing that? Because he was stronger than Satan. I'm going to say this before we move on, that the mission of Jesus is not fulfilled in compromise or coexistence. Jesus has not come to say, I'm another option. 
He's not come to coexist peacefully with Satan. He has invaded the kingdom of darkness. And he has conquered Beelzebub. And he has found Satan. And he is plundering Satan's possessions. Of which many of you once were. So one group, they thought of him as a lunatic. They liked much of what Jesus said, but much of it they couldn't get along with. This other group, they thought of him as a liar. He was deceiving them, they thought. But both in a way, they wanted to bind Jesus. They wanted to bind him and stop him. But let's jump back in at verse 31. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and, and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he said to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So finally, the family had set out there in verse 20. They heard about what was happening with Jesus there in front of them, and they think, well, we've got to get to him. We've got to stop him. And, and so Mark, as Mark does, he creates this sandwich. He starts the story, this, this section, by telling us about the family that's coming to stop Jesus. And and uh, they eventually get there, there at the end, as we just read. But in the middle, he stops and he tells the story about the scribes who were also coming down. This is how Mark work, oh, works oftentimes. But Jesus finally, his family finally arrives, and they call for Jesus outside. They can't get in, and they call for Jesus. Hey, send Jesus outside. Tell him his family's here. Tell him his mom's here. Yeah, mom. Yeah, tell, yeah she's here. Tell him his brothers are here. Why are they there? They're there to take him home quietly, to bind him. Jesus, your mom is outside along with your brothers. They, they want to see you. How does Jesus respond? Are you shocked? I've been shocked. I don't remember the first time I ever read that. I was shocked. I, well, Jesus was, I wanted to hear. Why did he say this? What does he say? He says, here are my mother, brothers, and sister. Whoever does the will of God. <coughs> That's my family. That's my family. So without, without severing his relationship with his earthly family, Jesus emphasizes the priority of the community of faith as the core family of God. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. You better know those who need to be brought low, who think that they can lean in on, on their proximity and awareness and acquaintance with Jesus are crushed when they see that even the mother and the brothers and sisters of Jesus are not considered his family. They have, they've not necessarily been lowered, but the family of God, the family of faith, those who do the will of the Father, of God, they are considered Jesus' family. I hope that brings you hope this morning. It's ironic to think about. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter. Whoever does the will of God. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter from which continent you hail. None of those things matter. Not in the kingdom of Jesus. Who is it? Who is his family? Those who obey God. So right here, true disciples, they are with Jesus, right? That's what we looked at. Last week, we talked about the apostles being called to Jesus. He called them to himself. That's what Jesus does to the church. He calls them to himself. 
true disciples. They're called to Jesus. They're with Jesus. They do the will of God. They are Jesus' true family. And false disciples, what do they do? False disciples, they attempt to restrain Jesus. They, they attempt to silence him. They edit his statements. They edit his words. They're ashamed of him. So we see here true disciples versus false disciples. So here's that third group kind of rising to the top here. That third group, we see it. There's liars. Then there's ones that say that Jesus is a liar. There's those who say he's a lunatic, but there are those here in this passage that say Jesus is Lord. That ancient Christian doctrine. Jesus is Lord. They were saying that Jesus is the stronger man who binds Satan and frees those who are bound. They are not loose to serve themselves. It's interesting. Oftentimes as Christians, we see that Jesus, he does, he loosens us from the things that we were once bound to. The interesting thing is he doesn't loose us so that we can serve ourselves. Ultimately, that's just back where we were, back to square one. No, Jesus loosens us from the grip and the bounds of Satan calls us to serve him instead. Those sitting around the, the, the table of Jesus, they're with them. No doubt the apostles are there. They're with Jesus. How many of the apostles died while serving Jesus, their life taken from them as they laid their life down for their master and Lord? What's really interesting here that really brings this in so clearly for, for me the irony that in this passage, standing outside, are likely James and Jude, two brothers of Jesus. They're likely part of the group that is saying, Jesus, come out here. We want to talk to you. Hey, when he comes out, you come up behind him. You put the back of his head. I'll wrap the bands around his arm. And we'll haul him into the, to the cart and we'll get him home. Likely they're a part of this coup. They're part of this plan to take Jesus and silence him. That's not how their lives end. What happens? How do I know? Well, in the book of James, written by James's brother, James writes this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> also, the brother of Christ. No, it doesn't say that. It just says, James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Baby brother, little brother, looking to his older brother, who he once thought was a lunatic, he looks at him and he says, I am his servant. He is my Lord. So James has now the beautiful, the brother, the earthly brother of Jesus. What is he, what state, what family is he a part of? The true family of Christ. Why? Because he does the will of God. That was James. How does Jude? How do we know about Jude's ending? How, how, how did his life turn out? Well, he, he wrote a book as well. The Spirit of God wrote through him, and we have it as, as a part of the canon. Jude, verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of, that's really in there, James. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So beautiful. You see, they recognize that there was nothing earthly to be gained by being a part of Jesus' earthly family. 
Nothing. It's all to be gained. They were to enter into a relationship, a true spiritual relationship with their earthly brother by doing the will of God. These two brothers called themselves servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. These men had once been bound by Satan. They were on the wrong team. They were part of the wrong party, looking at Jesus and calling him a lunatic. And now they have been loosed by Jesus. It's interesting that Mark has prepared this sandwich of sorts, right? Beginning with the family, ending with the family. And in the middle is this text about the religious elite. The day that they're coming to silence Jesus as well. But what ends up happening is that Jesus, we see, is he's not bound either by family or friend or foe. But instead, he is seen as the stronger man. Jesus finds the strong man, Satan, and he frees his captives to become followers of the strong son of God. And so the meaty part of, of this sandwich has, has really become a key for us. And Mark is showing us that the authority of Jesus binds everything. Jesus' followers must not and cannot bind Jesus. Instead, he is the binder of the strong man, and he himself remains unbound. Be bound by nothing. So when we take this passage and we take it on the heels of last week, what we see is this. And this if you write anything down, I want you to write this down. That Jesus binds Satan from the church and the church to himself. That Jesus binds Satan from the church and the church to himself. See, nobody can bind Jesus. He will not be bound. The irony is they wanted that with everything in them to stop Jesus, to shut him down, to shut him up. He would not be stopped. He would not be silenced. And he himself would stop and silence his enemies. He opened the hearts and minds of his disciples who had been blinded and bound by Satan and called them to himself. So these are the groups. Those who would call Jesus a lunatic. Those who would call him a liar. And ultimately those who would kneel before him and say, my Lord. This passage, it's interesting that we've got to mention this. It's, it's without a doubt one that influenced a particular statement made by C.S. Lewis. One of his books, he says this. Speaking of Jesus' identity, he says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying a really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Something like this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. This was the family. But I don't accept this claim to be God. And that, that's one thing that we must not say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing that Jesus would say or did say is not to be considered a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who's, or, or on the level of the man who says he is a post egg. Oh, I'm sorry, or, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not. So this morning... We see the three camps. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. In verse 21 and in 31, 
And in between, we see these three camps. What are they saying? They're saying something of Jesus. The family was saying he was out of his mind. The scribes, they were saying something as well. He's possessed. So my question for you this morning is this. What are you saying? What are you saying about Jesus? Are you saying that he's a lunatic? Are you saying that he's a liar? Or are you saying he's more than And I don't want to just end there. I don't want to just ask you what you're saying about Jesus. Let me ask, let me say this too. Every person that said something was doing something. Those who thought and said that Jesus was a lunatic, they had come to shut him up. Those who thought he was a liar had come to discredit him. It wasn't just words, there was actions. And those who said, Jesus is Lord, what were they doing? They were sitting at his feet, receiving his instructions. And so consider just for a moment your own life. In what way are you responding to the testimony of Mark that Jesus is the Son of God, and that in this text he is the stronger man, binding all, Loosing them to serve himself. Are you in that camp? Or are you somewhere else? And judge by your actions, not by your words. Which camp are you in this morning? For the first time in months this morning, we will share the Lord's Supper together as the true family of Jesus. Jesus use this text this morning, looking around the table, those seated amongst him, and he's saying, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you're a true disciple of mine? You do the will of God. So this morning, we at Jesus' table, we hear the word, his words come to us. And those of us who are walking with the Lord, those of us, those of us who have repented of our sins, received the message of Jesus, We've looked to the cross, the work of Christ, and we've claimed that for salvation as we've been promised. Those people, the true church, have been invited to a meal this morning. That meal is communion. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning, I want to invite you to participate. I want to invite you to participate. You don't have to be a member of Hagerstown Church to do communion with us, but you have to be a believer. And let me say this, you must be a believer indeed. One who is walking in obedience to the Lord's commands. If you're not a believer this morning, I, I want you to know this. I seriously could not be happier that you're here. But what we're about to do at these tables is not for you. There's nothing to be gained there. These elements that we'll take in a moment, they won't, they won't save you. They won't make you right before God. It's symbolic of what Christ has done and what Christ will do. So in the space between that, what he has done and what he will do, we celebrate with what's before us with this meal. So when we take communion, we are physically taking the symbol into ourselves, and by it we are nourished spiritually. That his body was broken and his blood was shed in that he paid the price for our sins, for his family. So this table is a symbol of him having taken all the wrath that we deserve as sinners and leaving nothing left for us except for affection and love and grace for Christians. 
What a beauty. What a meal that we can share this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow our heads now, recognizing that Jesus bowed his head for us. And that he gave his life on the cross. And that three days later, he arose. Verifying the acceptance of his sacrifice before God on our behalf. So we bow in reverence and respect and in awe. Adoration of the person and work of Christ. Spirit, we ask that you would fill us this morning. That our worship in this place, together and as we exit and worship you with our lives, that it would bring you true honor and glory to the divine triune God. We pray that you would bring comfort to our souls. We pray that these things would be done in the name of Jesus. So church, I want to encourage you to examine your heart. Consider the weight of what Jesus has done for us and how he has provided this meal for us this morning. So as we take communion, I want to encourage you to rejoice together. Tables are open. Christian, come to the table. Receive the elements.